Welcome to another edition of Now is the Time with Steve Bergson on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org. Now, here's Steve. All right, so today we're going into Are You Covenanted? Part 14. Okay, part 14. <clears throat> now, we've been looking at the, the effect, the responsibility, the role of leadership on the body or the people in their keeping of covenant. That's where we've been for the last week or two. We're going to continue with that theme here. We're in First Chronicles, First Divrei Hayamim, chapter 16. First Chronicles, chapter 16. Now, in some of the places that we're going to be going today, and again, I, I never know how much we're going to get done, we're going to read quite a bit even though there may be only one verse or two verses that covers the word covenant in it, but we want to make sure we're embracing what is happening and how that then relates to the covenant. In other words, were they behaving well, were they behaving badly, what choices they were making, what decisions they were making, and then why Abba would then bring that into covenantal understanding, why it would have any effect on the covenant issue. Okay, So we're going to read a, a good chunk here of chapter 16 of First Chronicles. We're going to begin in verse 1. Okay, in verse 1. And they brought the ark of Elohim and set it in the midst of the tent that Dawid had pitched for it. And they brought burnt offerings and peace offerings before Elohim. And when Dawid had made an end of an offering, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh and gave a portion to every one of Israel, both men and women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a measure, and a cake of raisins. And he appointed some of the Levites to serve before the ark of Yahweh, to bring to remembrance and to thank and to praise Yahweh Elohim of Israel. All right, so we're starting off with the ark is there and they're doing sacrifices and all of this stuff is happening. And he appoints the Levites to serve before the ark. Asaph, the chief, and his second, Zechariah, Yael, and Shemarah. I can't read English, but if it was in Hebrew, I could read it. Shemaramath and Yehiel and Matithiah and Eliab and Benyahu and Obed-Edom and Yehiel with harps and lyres. But Asaph was sounding with cymbals. And Benayahu and Yehazael, the priest, continually blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of Elohim. Now, I'm glad I got to read that and butcher the names so that all of you, the next time we have readings to do and the names come up, don't be concerned with butchering the names. I butchered them, so can you. Okay. Now, trust me, if it was in Hebrew, you wouldn't make a single mistake. It's the transliteration that's hard to read. Okay. Now, and on that day, David uh, first gave thanks to Yahweh by the hand of Asaph and his brothers. Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praise to him, speak of all his wonders, boast in his set-apart name, let the hearts of those seeking Yahweh rejoice, seek Yahweh and his strength, seek his face continually, remember his wonders which he has done, his signs and the right rulings of his mouth, O seed of Israel, his servant, O children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahweh or Elohim. His right rulings are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations, which he made with Avraham and his oath with Yitzchak. And he established it to Yaakov for a law, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Let me stop there for a second. So look what's going on. He's mentioning... And we can focus on this real, you know, obviously real easily. The idea of remembering the covenant because we are chosen. Israel is his servant. Israel is his servant. So we're serving him and we are his chosen ones. So we're not to think of ourselves as we're just special. No, we're here to be his servants. And that's what makes us special. He chose us to serve him. Okay. And children of Israel, the children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. But notice that there's a preface to this, and we're going to see either today or next week, whenever we get to it, in other chapters that we go into, they didn't do some of these things. What am I talking about? Well, they didn't let their hearts, 
Seek Yahweh and seek Yahweh and his strength and seek his face continually. They will have a challenge with that issue. Remembering his wonders which he had done. We are so easily jaded and complacent and we forget how far he's already brought us. That's what he's telling them. Remember how far he's already brought you. All the wonders that he's done. His signs and the right rulings of his mouth. The judgments he's made that were either in your favor or against you that helped you to grow. Because even the ones that are against you can help you to grow. And so that's the mindset going into this before he even mentions covenant. So in the covenantal mindset, we are remembering his wonders, seeking his face continually, seeking him and his strength, rejoicing. I mean, it starts off very clearly in the beginning. You're saying, you know, sing to him, praise him, speak of all his wonders in verse 9. Give thanks to him. See, look what it starts with. His first words are, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name. Well, you call upon his name in a place of thanks, not in griping, whining, complaining. Although if you do that, you've got the Israelite heritage for that. Okay? So you come by it honestly. But we've, we saw what happened to the whining and complaining and griping Israelites. Not what you want to have happen to you. But if you do what they did, you'll get the same results. By the same token, when Paul tells us these things were written as examples for us, we also have the examples of when people did something right and the fruit that they got and the, the, the reward and the, and the results they got, we can expect if we do what they did, we'd get those rewards as well. So we see examples on both sides. Here with David, they're doing some things right. And so we hear about the rejoicing, we hear about the excitement, but he starts it off with, look, I brought the ark in, but we have to be continually seeking his face. We have to be continually remembering all the wonders that he did and it's continuing to do. Remember the right rulings. Notice he put that, not just signs and wonders, but signs and right rulings. That's probably not something you heard on Sunday. Oh, we care about the signs and the wonders. Well, what about the signs and the laws, the right rulings, the judgments? O seed of Israel, his servant, O children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is Yahweh or Elohim. His right rulings are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations. So notice he's connecting here again the word, word and covenant. So what is the word? That which came out of Yahweh's mouth. And so what was the covenant in Exodus 19? Everything that comes out of your mouth, we will do. So it's showing again that continual linkage between the word and the covenant. The word he commanded for a thousand generations, which he made with Abraham and his oath to Yitzchak, and he established it to Yaakov for a law to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So he's also reminding us that all of this is because of what he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he covenanted with them and promised them certain things that were not going to happen in their lifetime. Things that were going to happen in the future. So continuing here, he says, verse 18, saying to you, I give the land of Canaan the portion of your inheritance, when you were but few in number, few indeed, and sojourners in it, and they went up and down from one nation to another and from one reign to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them and reproved sovereigns for their sake, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no evil. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Proclaim his deliverance from day to day. Now let's stop for a second. So there's a very important message here he said he allowed no one to oppress them. He reproved sovereigns for their sakes. And then he says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no evil. Now we can read lots of layers out of that. Anointed ones could be Israel themselves going through the other nations. And he kept them safe as they journeyed through the other nations. There were battles where not a single Israelite died and all of the other side died. So he protected them. But then he brings in this idea about do not do my prophets no evil. So now we have another level of understanding that could be read into this verse when he talks about anointed ones. Those that are anointed and appointed in roles placed there by Yahweh. He says, you need to be aware of that and do not touch them and do them no evil. So now you have the responsibility of identifying those that are anointed. 
We see in the book that we read, they did not always do a good job of identifying who was anointed. We have that responsibility. We have to prayerfully seek the Father, say, show me your anointed so that I can do them no evil, and that I can make sure that I'm not touching them, meaning in an inappropriate way. Am I, am I doing something that would affect them, de- derail them, stop them from what they've been called anointed to do, that kind of thing. Not necessarily physically touch them. He says, do not, think of it this way, it's an idiomatic phrase, do not interfere with what they're doing. Maybe that's a better interpretation there to make it more clear. Do not interfere with my anointed ones and do not, and my prophets, do them no evil. So you may ask yourself, am I doing anything that's hindering or interfering with the, the, the work of an anointed one? Then he continues, he says, sing to Yahweh all the earth. Proclaim his deliverance from day to day. Now, I think it's not a stretch to connect the anointed ones and the prophets to how he brings about deliverance, since that's the way it flowed. But, you know, we could read this, and then we can, we're so used to, in our Bibles, having chapter breaks and verse breaks and all these other breaks that make us feel like, at any point, it's a new thought. And sometimes it is, but not often. A lot of times it's a continuing thought. And so the flow gets lost because in our minds we're used to dissecting it, breaking it up, and not actually letting it flow. Which is why I like to read 36 verses, as we're going to read here, to get the point that three verses mention the word covenant, verses 15, 16, and 17. Okay? So as we're looking at this, let's realize that he says, Don't touch my anointed, do my prophets no evil, sing to Yahweh all the earth, proclaim his deliverance from day to day, because it's through these that he provides deliverance. I don't think that's a stretch. Maybe you do. You can disagree. He says, declare his esteem among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples. That's part of our job is to be the ones who are declaring his wonders. This doesn't mean wake them up and knock on their door on Sunday morning. This doesn't mean go and bother them in the line at the, at the uh, supermarket. It simply means those you have access to, to share with them and say, I have to share with you this amazing thing that Yahweh did for me. And that's what you should be doing. He says, For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all mighty ones. For all the mighty ones of the peoples are, uh, are matters of naught, nothing. For all the mighty ones of the peoples. He says, they're not even things to be messed with and worried about. They're nothing. He says, there's one. He says, for great is Yahweh, and nothing is the Elohims of the people. So it's not like he's just better or greater. No, he's great and they're nothing. That's a big difference. He says, continuing verse 27, For all the mighty ones of the peoples are matters of naught, but Yahweh made the heavens. So he says, those guys, those other mighty ones, they did nothing. Yahweh made the heavens. Excellency and splendor are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Now, we get to verse 28, and I want to, I'm going to clarify something here, which I think is interesting. Ascribe to Yahweh, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh esteem and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the esteem of his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Bow yourself to Yahweh in the splendor of set-apartness. So he has this idea of ascribe. Is that a word you guys normally use? Ascribe to this, you know. So a lot of you are probably thinking, I guess I might guess what it means or whatever. Okay, the Hebrew word here is havu in verse 28 and 29. And it has the meaning options of, okay, a lot of verse, any word you look up in dictionaries has meaning options, right? You look in a dictionary, option one, then option two and option three of what the word could be, how it could be used. So here are some of the meaning options for havu. Ascribe, give, bring, and choose. So ascribe has a definition in English of to regard as belonging to or to attribute something to. So maybe we read this differently and we say, give or bring or attribute to Yahweh esteem and strength. Give, bring, and attribute to Yahweh esteem of his name. 
See, this is the kind of thing. When he said, ascribe to Yahweh, O clans of the peoples. He's saying, look, give, bring, and attribute to Yahweh all of these things. Don't ascribe it to the other mighty ones and think that there's something. You bring this, you give this, you, you choose Yahweh. These are all parts of the meaning of Havu. Okay? Hopefully that clarifies a little bit for everybody. Because then he says, bring an offering and come before him and bow yourself to Yahweh. In splendor of set-apartness, tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established, immovable. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say, among the nations, Yahweh shall reign. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field rejoice and all that is in it. Let the trees of the forest then sing before Yahweh, for he shall come to judge the earth. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his kindness is everlasting. We sang that today, didn't we? Hodu le Yahweh, kitov. All right? Ki le'olam vayet. Okay, now. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, and say, save us, O Elohim, of our deliverance, and gather us together, and deliver us from the Gentiles, to give thanks to your set-apart name and boast in your praise. Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised Yahweh. All right, so here we're seeing a good example. We're going to see some that are not so good. But here we see a good example. David has brought the ark back. He's reestablished and appointed the Levites. And he has the people understanding the correct approach and focus towards their creator. So you can see the powerful effect of leadership here. The king has brought these things back and put them back in place and has basically instructed or commanded the people, you need to now get back in line with this. But he's not just dictating it. He's giving them reasons because Yahweh created everything. Because he just, it says his mercy endures forever. His kindness is everlasting. He is good. He did all these signs and, and right rulings for you. He did all these wonderful things. He didn't list all the things he did here. We have another chapter we're going to get to eventually in the Psalms where he actually lists all the things he did. And we're going to read them. And we're going to read them even though you're going to sit there going, Oh, I know he did this and he parted the sea and he gave them manna. And blah. But see, you can't let yourself get there. You have to always, always be impressed. It should never be, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, I know. No, you should always be impressed when you remember what he did. Don't get jaded. Don't get complacent. And so when we get to the Psalms, we're going to read one of the Psalms where we're going to cover, and he's going to list all those things. Why? Because they had forgotten when he wrote the Psalm. He was saying, but you forgot. You're acting like you forgot anyway. Maybe you didn't actually forget. But you know what? When you behave a certain way, it can often demonstrate that you forgot. Sometimes you do that with people you work with. Sometimes our children do that with us as parents. Sometimes we do that. In other words, your children look at you and they're doing, and you look at the child, you're like, did you forget who you were dealing with? Did you forget that mommy or daddy was going to have a real problem when you know you do that? And we've told you this 600 times. But they can for, you, you can forget because you're not keeping it as a frontlet before your eyes. You're not keeping it right here in front of you. Remember what he said at the beginning in verse 11. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his, seek his face continually. How do we do that? He tells you in the next verse how you do that. Remember his wonders. That's part of how you do the, the previous verse. I mean... He is so good to give us instruction that's so simply straightforward if we just let it be. He tells us something and it tells us how to do it in the next verse. Seek Yahweh in his strength. Seek his face continually. How? By remembering his wonders, which he has done. His signs are the rulings of his mouth. That's how you do it. And then don't forget who you are in relation to him. You're his servant and his chosen ones, but you're chosen to serve. To be that light, to be that representative of what he is doing here on the earth. And the way you're his light and his representative is not by telling everybody that you represent him, by living his way, by walking it out. Because that's what the covenant was. He talks, we do. And then we are a light to the world because they see what doing his stuff brings as a result. And so that's the, that's the critical piece in this part here. Let's go now to 
Second Chronicles uh, chapter 15. So we're going to go to the next book and chapter 15, Second Chronicles 15. And in verse 1, And the Spirit of Elohim came upon Azarahu, son of Obed, and he went out and, uh, uh, to face Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Yehuda and Benjamin. Yahweh is with you while you are with him. That should be written on the walls of your house somewhere. Yahweh is with you while you are with him. And if you seek him, he is found by you. But if you forsake him, he forsakes you. This is not rocket science. Brain surgery. This is not something you need a high level of education for. It's very simple and quite logical. If you are with him, he is with you. It doesn't say if he's with you, you need to be with him. No. If you seek him, if you go after him, if you move towards him, he'll be with you. You'll find him. But if you forsake him, he's going to forsake you. And for many days, Israel has been without the true Elohim and without a true priest, a Torah priest, and without Torah. Now notice the connection right away to this. He says the spirit came upon him. He went out to see Asa and said, listen, Asa. Who was Asa? The king. Prophets generally go to who? The king. They'd, so when all these people want to come up to you and say, well, I've got a prophecy for you and I got a word. Of, unless you're the king, why do they think they're being sent to you? You don't see these things generally anywhere in your scriptures. Maybe there's one or two exceptions. But throughout the thousands of years covered in scriptures, you see people being called of Yah sent to the leadership. Okay? And not just any leadership, the king. Now, there were priests they could have been sent to. No, they were sent to the king. The king then dealt with the priests. You saw that with David in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles. He put the priest back in line and said, guys, get back to work. Go do what you're supposed to do. Now, it says there that for many days, because they weren't doing this, Israel had been without the true Elohim. And notice the connection between our relationship with the true Elohim and the need for there to be a Torah priest and Torah itself. Go back to the teaching called Learn and Teach the Torah. We're going to have to redo that one, I think. Because people forget that there is a scriptural mandate and evidence that there were supposed to be Torah teachers. That you weren't supposed to just get the Ruach and the Ruach. Look, the Ruach went to... Azariahu, the son of Obed, the Ruach did not go to Asa, the Ruach did not go to Benjamin and Yehuda, the Ruach went to the appointed to then share the message. The Ruach could have done all those other things, but that's not what Yahweh has chosen as his methodology. We have to see that. Because you're going to hear, and I know we've said this a hundred times with every teaching, you never know what teaching someone might be listening to first, so sometimes we've got to repeat ourselves. You need to know that out there, there's a prevalent wrong teaching that we don't need teachers anymore. We're just taught by the Ruach, by the Spirit. That is nowhere in your Bible. That is nowhere in the new or the old. It's nowhere. That's just the teaching of those that do not want to come under authority. And so they're defending that position and they want you to join them in that rebellious nature. They do not want it. Now, maybe they hadn't found good authority. Fine. Keep looking. Some of you did that for lots of years and couldn't find it. Keep looking. Keep looking. Now, some of you, even after you gave up looking, it was thrown in your face. <laughs> so you found it a different way. But you should be ready and available so that it doesn't have to be thrown in your face. Because it says, and for many days, Israel was without these things. And there's a connection between being without Yahweh and being without Torah, without a priest or a teacher to teach the Torah and to do the works and serving of Torah. Verse 4, And But in their distress they turned to Yahweh Elohim of Israel, and they sought him, and he was found by them. Just like he said, look, he allows you to be distressed so that you will look up. <laughs> Easiest to look up when you're flat on your back. So sometimes he has to sweep the legs out from under you so that you finally will look up. And he looks at you and says, you done doing it your way? You ready to start listening? 
because I'm, you know, it's not fun for me as your, your creator and your, your, you know, basically your father up in the heavens look down at you being stupid. Are you ready to stop being stupid and start listening? Because really, I don't think it's a, a more straightforward word than when we don't listen to him, we are being stupid, foolish, unwise. You put the adjective in there that you prefer. He knows and you don't. He's smart and we're not. I mean, I don't want else. How do we figure this out? Okay. Okay, so if you've ever made anything, designed something, built anything, even if it's like a recipe, you got to love it when you're going to do it and someone comes in to tell you how to do the thing you invented. It's like, I'm glad you're telling me how to do something. I'm the one who made this. And you're going to tell me that I'm doing it wrong. Yahweh made all this. Made all of you. And sometimes we act like we think that, you know, we know better than he does. That's just plain dumb. Okay. He says, and in those days, they were distressed, right? They started seeking after Yahweh. He was found in those days, verse 5, there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, for great disturbances were on all the inhabitants of the land. Now, this is not after he found. They're saying, look, they were distressed. They were seeking him, and they had to find him. But by, guess what? When you find him, it doesn't fix everything in the first five minutes. They were under all kinds of stress. There was no peace whether they were going in or whether they were going out, there was great disturbances on all the inhabitants of the land. And they were beaten down nation by nation, city by city, for Elohim troubled them with every distress. Why was he doing this? I don't know, maybe because he promised it in Deuteronomy. When he said, and if you don't listen, I'm going to curse you seven times. And if you don't listen still, I'm going to curse you seven times. And if you're not instructed by these curses, I'm going to curse you seven times. This is the fulfillment of those promises. And be encouraged that when Yahweh does the, un, you know, the, uh, the unpopular, unfun, whatever the right word is, when he curses you, when you're suffering, you're under distress, that sometimes you should be encouraged by it because it's fulfillment of what he said. And if he's going to follow through on one, he'll follow through on all. And that includes the negative stuff. When he said, I will disperse you to the corners of the earth, and we read that that's exactly what he did, but he said it a long time before he did it, that's part of our evidence and proof that he knows the end from the beginning. So here we're reading in Chronicles that yes, they were suffering in a way that we read about in Deuteronomy that they would. And so we are not surprised. In verse uh, 7, but you... He's saying all the nations are beaten down. They do all these things, every city. He says, but you be strong and do not let your hands be feeble for there is a reward for your work. Who is he talking to? Asa, but also he said, and all Yehuda and Benjamin. So he's expecting Asa to share this with all the people. He's saying, you, Asa, you, Benjamin, you, Yehuda, he says, you be strong and do not let your hands be feeble for there is reward for your work. Do the work as a reward. What have we said over and over again in the teachings like the one for the search for the doctrine of grace or the one on are you saved? That there is works and works bring reward. Eternal life is a reward. Peace all the health issues, all the safety issues, all rewards that he promises. The first half of the Deuteronomy 28 chapter, all of the rewards, the blessings. But your wrong works also bring a result. We don't call it a reward, we call it a curse or a punishment. So what you do is going to bring a result. You're going to reap what you sow. We're told that he will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. So you, you do what you're supposed to do, you reap the reward. You do things you shouldn't do, you reap the curse. He says, but you, be strong and do not let your hands be feeble, for there is reward for your work. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominations from all the land of Yehuda and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim and restored the altar of Yahweh that was before the porch of Yahweh. And gathered all Yehuda and Benjamin and those who sojourned with them from Ephraim and Manasseh and Shimon, for they came over to him in the great numbers from Israel when they saw that Yahweh his Elohim with Yahweh his Elohim was with him. And they gathered together at Jerusalem 
in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa, and offered to Yahweh on that day 700 bulls, 7,000 sheep, and from the spoil which they had brought. Now let me stop right there. So what happened here? There had been kings, not like David, who had messed some things up. If you read through, it's almost every other one, pretty much. And so at this point, Asa is king, and things are not being done right. So again, we're seeing the connection, the role, the effect of leadership. So then he is brought a message from on high, from Yah, through a prophet. And then he chooses to set the pace. He removes the altars, all the pagan idols, and then he brings the people together and say, we're going to be doing things a little different. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek Yahweh Elohim of their fathers with all their heart and with all their being. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a new covenant? Or does it sound like a renewing of that old covenant? Now it's new by the fact that they broke the old one. So it's a new one. But is it different? No. So let's be careful when you listen to people pushing a quote-unquote new covenant agenda that somehow the new covenant is different. No, it's new because the other one was broken. It is not different. This one here is exactly, it sounds exactly like what you read in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema and the Vahafta. And we're going to seek him. We're going to covenant with him with all our heart and with all our being. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Vahafta? Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9, right? And they entered into this covenant. Now, it says here, And whoever would not seek Yahweh Elohim of Israel would be put to death from small to great, from man to woman. So he was taking this series. He said, look, we have had this thing all screwed up. We're suffering because of it. We are not messing around anymore. We're going to seek him with everything. And if you won't, you either better leave and get out of Dodge or we're going to kill you. You're not going to stay in here and influence and affect those around you in that wrong way. Let's not diminish or minimize the potential effect that people have on you that are not doing things right. Now, I'm not talking about... Let me see how I want to say this. I'm not talking as much about your non-covenanted friends and your non-covenanted family. You know why? They don't affect you the same way of the covenanted friends and family, or at least they claim to be, who are doing things wrong. Because you know they're not covenanted. You know your family, your friends, whoever it is, you don't expect them to eat right, to keep the right days, to treat each other right, to love him and to love their neighbor right. So I'm not talking about the level of influence they have on you, although you need to be aware that there is potentially. Here it's talking about those in the camp who are claiming to be in the camp that are not keeping this covenant. Potentially, that's like a cancer in the body. And it will metastasize and spread. So bear in mind, I'm not telling you you need to get rid of everybody you know that's not in covenant. This is not some cultish isolation. Even Yeshua said, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from being influenced by it. Okay? But remember, this is talking about you need to be aware, and some of you really have this problem because I know specifically people that are doing this here and not locally as well that are in the group who are still interacting with people that used to be or claim to be part of the group, so to speak, covenant, Torah observant, etc., and no longer are, and you're allowing them to still have high levels of interaction with you and they can influence you. And we've seen that. So if your brother or sister goes over the bridge into Judaism, you need to make a strong little barrier between you and them. Because they could influence you to go the same way. Or your friends that, well, you know, they were part of the covenant, but now they found a watered-down version of it like the Melchizedekian teaching thing that's out there. They can influence you as well. Be aware of those that seem to be covenanted, or were covenanted, and now have chosen a slightly different path on their ability to bring you in that direction. You all think, and maybe it's true, but the potential is very dangerous. You all think that you're influencing them. That's potentially, possibly true. You might. But the risk, 
the potential high percentage of risk that they'll influence you isn't worth that. They're not your problem. It's his problem. It's not for you to influence them. It's he's going to do that. If he's going to let them go on their journey, I've been on a journey, and then walk them back from the journey, he walked me back from the journey. Nobody else did. Nobody influenced me. Nobody came to me. He did it. That's, I believe, probably going to work with everybody the same way. Let them go on their journey. You keep walking your journey. You be that light. But keep that buffer that they are not likely to lead you in their direction. Because generally speaking, people when they leave become very, from a Christian point of view, evangelical. They proselytize. I don't mean evangelical meaning like that church. But I mean they they want to proselytize and get others to go where they're going. They become very involved with trying to always bring up those topics to try to get you to question where you are to want to go where they are. Okay? And we're not to proselytize. The few that were out there doing that, Yeshua sent out, were trained to do it a certain way by going into towns, seeing where there was Abba was calling and those that were he was calling, and if nobody, get up and leave. Not pestering or bothering or annoying and, and trying to convince people of anything. Going there and saying, has Abba brought anybody here that we're supposed to talk to? Nope. Next town. Yep. Okay, we'll set up a congregation. But realize the level of aggressive proselytizing that people that were covenanted when they now are partially or somewhat or differently covenanted, they're going to try to convince you why they're right and you're wrong. And if you experience that, you know what I'm talking about. You start talking to those people. I'm just telling you, you need to be aware. Now, if any of those people, and I'm not saying this is happening now, this could be happening in the future. If any of those people that you run into are reviling the leadership where you came from or the other people where you came from, we're told you're not even to break bread with a reviler. And so don't you go out and still go out to dinner and hang out with people that you know are doing the reviling. And some of you are still doing that and... It's not for me to get in your face and make you stop, but you should be, you know, there's no reason to be doing that. Oh, but, but, what do you mean, but, but? But I like them. So what? Nobody said just because they're doing all this stuff, they're not nice people anymore, and they're not whatever friends to you and treat you nice, but they're scriptural mandates. If the people you're interacting with are reviling the leadership you're under, you should not be hanging out with them. And they don't have to be doing it 24-7 in every sentence out of their mouth. If they've done it and never repented of it and never corrected themselves, they're revilers. So you could say, well, I don't hear them talking about you anymore. But they did. And they never repented of it. So I'm just saying you need to know this. Now, am I talking about anything specific? No. It's about what's going on right here. Why would he make a covenant that said... Those who are seeking the Father, seeking the heart, seeking Yahweh, all these things, great. But those who don't, we're going to kill them. Whether small or great, that means in status or age, and also whether man or woman. Okay, somebody's alarm is going off. Okay? And so we need to understand how serious Asa understood this. The level of potential influence... That somebody would have on you if you allowed them to still have a relationship with you. So much so that rather than allow that to happen, they made a covenant to put to death. Look, you have that mandate in Deuteronomy 13. If there's one who thinks they found the, the truth and they found the way and they found you know the answers all in some direction, the path to whatever, and yet it's leading away from Yahweh and Torah... That person needs to be put to death. Now, we don't do that today. We don't have a system in place, the judges, the corporate you know, nation as a whole, etc. But at least you can disconnect and stop allowing for the influence. But do we do that? No. Do we still listen to teachers we know have done things they shouldn't do? Sure we do. Teachers that have named dates, teachers that have been wrong as far as those things. Why? Well, but Rabbi, you don't understand how important this teacher was to my getting to where I am today. I'm grateful that that happened. Move on. What do you want me to tell you? How else am I supposed to say it? I'm glad that person was useful in getting you here. By the way, probably half a dozen or more of your Christian teachers were a part of getting you here. But you don't need to still be listening to them. 
Even though they had usefulness in getting you here. Everything that happened to you to this moment was being used to get you here. But that doesn't mean you have to keep walking in some of those things that were useful to here, but they're not useful going forward. As a matter of fact, they're risky. They're dangerous. So dangerous so that Asa thought anybody doing it should be put to death. I'm talking, that is serious, serious stuff. We're not talking about, it doesn't say here, if they break the Sabbath, if they eat different. It says, look, we're making a covenant to seek him with all of our heart and with all our beings. And if they don't seek him, then they're going to be put to death. So now we have to ask, what does seeking him look like? Well, it looks like works. How do I know if you're seeking him? Well, some of you, I can know right away, all of you actually, because you're here. And it's Shabbat. You could have been somewhere else. You could have been doing something else. You could have been working or playing or doing whatever you wanted to do. But you chose, because you're seeking him, to not forsake the assembling and come into a, 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 a Mikra Kodesh, a commanded assembly, on the Shabbat. So I can see that you're seeking him. How else can I see that? When you have decisions to make and you counsel about it, how you're balancing out what Yahweh said and what you know is the worldly way to do it or what was the old way in your life that you did things. Now some of you, because you don't know what to do, that doesn't mean you're not seeking him by coming to me or a leader. You're seeking because you don't know what to do. Sometimes I know you're not seeking as much as you should because I know you know. You just are hoping I'm going to give you a different answer. Those of you that are doing that, you're, not, you're a little weak on your seeking him. Okay, if you're seeking him because you really don't know, you're new, or a situation came up that you hadn't really dealt with before, and you come and ask, that's fine. But several of you have had to say, are you asking me because you don't know, or because you don't really like the answer you came up with and you're hoping it'll be different? Because probably 20% of the time or more, those are the questions that Robert and I, Rabbi Tom and I get. We get you know, questions that we know you know. But you don't like the answer because it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, it's going to mess with some of your relationships, it's going to mess with your finances, something. And so you don't like it. So you're hoping that I will take the burden and I'm going to be the one. Because if I tell you it's okay to do something you shouldn't, you can now say, oh, well, I was just listening to leadership. Which is why you shouldn't want to be in leadership and telling people what to do because if you do tell them wrong, that person would be right. It would be your fault. And so you need to be very reluctant and very careful about offering guidance to people and telling them what to do. Verse 14, And they swore to Yahweh with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns, and all Yehuda rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their being, and he, found, he was found by them, and Yahweh gave them rest all around. So notice how this starts off. I kind of like the way he lays out in my book. It starts at the top of one column and finishes the top of the other one. We're told in verse 2, if you seek Yahweh, he is found by you. If you forsake him, he forsakes you. And then we're told here that the prophet is telling this to Asa. Asa goes and does what he's supposed to do. And then here you see them rejoicing and doing it. And they're given, he's found by them and he's giving them rest. Because in verse 3 and 4, it goes into the fact that you know, they had distress and they were under all that. There was no peace. They didn't have any rest. And so, but if you do this stuff, the fruit is there and you can see it all happening all in one chapter. Okay, now this chapter covers a little bit of time, but all in one chapter, we can see it happening. It's a beautiful thing. Let's go to Second Chronicles 29. Second Chronicles 29. Look, did Yahweh promise you eternal life and all these wonderful things and say at the same time, and, and nothing in your life that was going to be lost or given up or did he promise you that you wouldn't have to give anything up? That you wouldn't lose any relationships? That there wouldn't be any challenges? That people in your life might have to go bye-bye, meaning you'll have to separate? Did he promise you any of that? No, he promised you that it would happen. Yeshua tells us, hey, you choose me, you're going to possibly lose and likely lose some family, friends, and other people. That's, and you, how do you choose him? <clears throat> you don't go somewhere like we just had elections. You don't go and fill out a, bottle, a ballot and say, I choose Yeshua. Here. 
You don't, you don't do that. How do you show you're choosing him? By your choices. By your submission. By your obedience. That's how you show you chose him. But doing that will put you at odds with family members and with friends and co-workers and employers and employees, etc. And that's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, inconvenient. And some of you are going to make the wrong choice and you're going to protect the relationships instead of protecting the relationship that you have with him. You're going to protect the relationship you have with all those people or some of those people. Why would you do that? Well, because you're choosing them over him. He wants you to choose him over everyone. He says, you must love less by comparison. It says, you know, some translation says hate. All those who don't hate mother, father, no, it doesn't want to, the, the, the Greek actually means love less by comparison. You must love them less than you love him. He didn't say you shouldn't love them, but you love them less. You love your friends. You love your family. But you should love them less, which means when push comes to shove, you choose him and not them. And he's going to put you through pop quizzes and little tests to see whether or not you'll pick him over them. This is a time of year when that's going to come up a lot for some people, especially if you're new. Family members are going to ask you to come to Christmas dinner, or they're going to ask you to get involved with some other things that have to do with the holidays coming up. You know, those, those things that we don't do anymore, the Christmas stuff. And you're going to have to make decisions about getting involved in these things to whatever level you get involved. Choosing him or choosing them. Some of you have jobs where your boss is going to say, well, you know, we're, 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 we got the holidays coming up here and we're going to have to close down for some days and everything, so we need some people to work some Saturdays. And you're going to be put in a tough spot when they tell you all of a sudden you got to work some Saturdays. But it's only a tough spot depending on this, your heart. For those of you that are not watching this but listening, I'm pointing to my heart. If your heart is right, it's an easy choice. That doesn't mean you like it. It's just easy. Easy choice to make. A little tough to know that you're going to have to deal with some consequences, but the choice wasn't tough. But if your heart's not right, what do I mean by right? Solidly, 100% on him first. If your heart's totally that way, loving him with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. By the way, it doesn't say to love your neighbor with all your heart, might, and strength. It says to also love your neighbor as yourself. But you love him with everything. Then it should be an easy choice. Easy doesn't mean that you're happy about it. Easy doesn't mean that you're going to love all the consequences of it. But the choice was a no-brainer. It's just, you, you know, that's it. Sorry, can't do it. Not, no, done. Easy choice. So when you struggle, the first thing you should do, I know that a lot of you right away want to call me or call leadership. First thing you need to do is pray and say, Abba, why is my heart struggling with this? Because even if your heart is struggling with it and you haven't prayed and you haven't dealt with the heart issue, even if you call one of us, if your heart's still struggling and not right, whatever I tell you is still not going to help because you're still not going to do it. You got to ask for Abba, help me with my heart issue before I call the leadership because I'm struggling. My heart is hurting because of the choice I know I need to make and I don't want to make it. You got to make some tough choices. You see that all throughout scriptures, people having to make tough choices. You see what happens when they do and when they don't. And so it's very important that we understand this. And so they, they got excited about it and they decided to put their prayer in with it and that they were going to go for it and go forward. Okay, we're in chapter 29 now, Second Chronicles. Verse 1. Oh boy, let's see what we're going to get into this. All right. Hiskiahu began to reign when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Yerushalayim. And his mother's name was Abiah and the daughter of Zechariahu. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh according to all that his father Dawid did. Now, so here we have a king doing what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. We had Asa coming into a place where they were doing it wrong and then he turned it around. Hiskiyahu is doing it right. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh and repaired them. So now we know that the king before had neglected some things. Hezekiah comes in. And has to start cleaning it up. You know, this is a really good time of year to be thinking about that too, because we're going into Hanukkah. 
And in Hanukkah, I've got a teaching out there called the time to rededicate yourself. And so some of you have allowed, <laughs> maybe this is a good analogy, maybe it's not. You got a throne up here in your head. When you're sitting on it, you're the bad king. When Yeshua's sitting on it, it's the good king. Every now and then, though, you jump back in the seat. Guess what happens? Then you have to get out and clean it up again. When the good king gets in there, you got to be the servant cleaning up the, the mishkan, the tabernacle that your body is, that your mind and your heart is. You got to clean that out. So here's the thing. The very first year of his reign, what does Hezekiah do? He goes in, he opens the doors and prepares them. Brings in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the open place of the east, to the east. And he said to them, listen to me, O you Levites. Now set yourselves apart, set apart the house of Yahweh, Elohim of your fathers, and remove the uncleanness from the set apart place. For our fathers have trans, uh, trespassed and have done evil in the eyes of Yahweh or Elohim, and have forsaken him, and have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of Yahweh, and have given their backs. What do we read in First Chronicles? If you forsake him, he will forsake you. And Hezekiah is going, this already happened. We've forsaken him. We've messed this up. So let me get you guys together. The priests, the Levites. And by the way, understand when we taught a little bit about the Melchizedekian versus Levitical, the kings were supposed to be the Melchizedek. David was a Melchizedek. Hezekiah was a Melchizedek. They were a king priest. That's why you find the king grabbing a hold of the priest, not the other way around. When do you see anywhere in scripture the priest going to the king? Like never. You see prophets going to the king. But you see already in more than one place here, the king went and grabbed a hold of the priest and said, you guys snap to it. So what's higher, the the Melchizedekian or the Levitical? The Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian. When you see Moses and Aaron, who was in charge, really? Moses or Aaron? Moses was the Melchizedekian. Aaron was Levitical. So you see here, the king grabs all of the Levites and says, you guys, get in there, do your job, clean up the place. Let's get this thing going the way it's supposed to, because we have messed this up. We have forsaken our Elohim. They gave their backs to Yahweh. They turned their backs on him. Verse 7, and they shut the doors of the porch, put out the lamps, and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the set-apart place to the Elohim of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of Yahweh fell upon Yehuda and on Jerusalem, and he, was, uh, he has given them up for a trembling, for an astonishment, for a hissing, as you see with your eyes. By the way, you see that also in the prophecies about this event, that Yehuda would get to the point where they were a mockery, and, uh, and people would look at them and say, look at what these people have done and what their Elohim has done to them. And it's happening here. And see, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword. And our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh Elohim of Israel so that the heat of his wrath turns away from us. I'm just thinking, I wonder what covenant he would make to fix this. I would guess the Exodus 19 one. I would guess the one Asa made. I would guess the one David made. I would guess the one that has us doing whatever he says. Because he says that's in my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh to take away his wrath. Why is he mad? Because we didn't do everything he said. So I think it's a reasonable logical conclusion that Hiskiyahu Hezekiah here is saying, I'm going to make, I want to renew that covenant. I want to bring that covenant back into place. My sons, do not be slack, for Yahweh has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him and to be attendants for him and burn incense. He's talking to the Levites. And the Levites rose up. Okay, let me just see where I'm going here in the verses. We're in chapter 29. Okay, so you see in verse 12 that the Levites rose up and it gives a list of their names. I'm not going to butcher them. So they rose up and they did what, what, what Hiskayahu told them to do. Continuing in verse 15. And they gathered their brothers and set themselves apart and went according to the command of the sovereign at the words of Yahweh to cleanse the house of Yahweh. 
And the priest came into the inner part of the house of Yahweh to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness they found in the hekel of Yahweh, in the temple, to the courtyard of the house of Yahweh. Then the Levites received it to take it outside to the Wadi Kidron. And they began to set apart on the first day of the first month, on the eighth day of the month, they came to the porch of Yahweh, and they set apart the house of Yahweh in eight days, and on the seventeenth, excuse me, the sixteenth day of the first month, they had finished. Then they came into the sovereign Hiskiyahu and said, "We have all cleansed. Excuse me, we have cleansed all the house of Yahweh and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the table of the showbread with all its utensils, and all the utensils which the sovereign Ahaz in his reign had pushed aside when he trespassed." We had prepared and set apart, and see, they are before the altar of Yahweh. And the sovereign Hiskiahu rose up early, gathered the heads of the city, and went out, uh, went up to the house of Yahweh. He went out up to the house of Yahweh. Now, understand again, we see Ahaz messed up, and other kings that did well. The king, each king, every other one. So we see the effect. We're paying attention to the role and the effect of leadership. They set the pace. They set the standard, the expectation. Right? Asa said, and, and Hezekiahu said, and David said to the priest, I expect you to start doing this, clean this out, set it up, get it ready, and perform what needs to be done. So the leadership sets the expectation. In both directions, by the way. The leadership set the wrong expectations why they went the wrong way. The leadership's there to hold accountable to be responsible, to oversee. You see the need and the effect of leadership here? Oh, no, well, they just kept messing up because, you know, they, they were human leadership and they just weren't being led by the Ruach. And, you know, now we're being led by the Ruach. Really? How many people do you know say they're being led by the Ruach and every one of them's on a different page spiritually? Is there different Ruachs? Is the Ruach confused? I don't think so. It's because that's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way. Now, did you notice that, let's see, I want to connect this now to Second Chronicles chapter 30. So never mind, it was something else I want to do is the next one. Go. Okay, Second Chronicles chapter 30. And Hiskiyahu, verse 1, sent to all Israel and Yehuda, and he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh to come to the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem to perform the Passover, to Yahweh Elohim of Israel. But the sovereign and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to perform the Passover in the second month. For they were unable to perform it as it's at its time, because not enough priests had set themselves apart and the people had not gathered in Jerusalem. And the matter was right in the eyes of the sovereign and in the eyes of all the assembly. And they settled the matter to send a call to all Israel from Beersheba to Dan to come to perform a Passover to Yahweh Elohim of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time as it was written. And the runners went to all Israel, Yehuda with the letters of the sovereign and the leaders and spoke according to the command of the sovereign. Children of Israel, turn back to Yahweh, Elohim of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Israel, so that he returns to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Asher, of the Assyrians. Now, so you see what's happening? The leadership is leading. In this case, correctly. They're saying, okay, we don't have enough to do Passover correctly. We'll do it in the second month. Send out the letters and tell people you need to. And remember what it says here, turn back to Yahweh. It says, verse 7, do not be like your fathers and like your brothers who trespass against Yahweh, Elohim of their fathers, so that he gave them up to ruin, as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers. Stretch forth the hand, stretch forth the hand to Yahweh and come to a set apart place which he has set apart forever, and serve Yahweh your Elohim, so that his burning wrath turns away from you. For if you turn back to Yahweh, your brothers and your children shall be shown compassion by their captors, even to return to this land. For Yahweh your Elohim shows favor and compassion and does not turn his face from you if you turn back to him. How do we turn back to him? By getting back to the covenant by doing what he says and not doing what he says not to do and getting off that self-sovereign throne and letting the king reign this is the critical piece okay I think we're going to end here alright so I hope you can see at this point that you have 
kings and how they affect. Now, I didn't read us the kings that messed up because there weren't the verse, the word covenant wasn't in any of those sections. But you see the results of each of the good ones having to clean up the mess of the previous one that was a bad one. So you can see when the king was good, the people did right. When the leader was bad, the people did wrong. This is all about leadership and not just about kings. Some of you have been in companies where you've seen really good leadership and the place runs great. You've been in other places where there was bad leadership and the place runs horribly. Leadership has a high burden of responsibility in getting these things to move forward. But you have the responsibility to now do your part, which is two things. Find the good leadership. You have to go find that anointed point of leadership. And then secondly, you have to then get under and be submissive to that authority. Let them lead. What would have happened to Hiskayahu's kingdom if the people didn't join him in his going forward? What would happen with Asa? What would happen with David if the people chose not to be submissive to their king? It would have been horrible. It wouldn't have been the good results that they started getting under the good kings. But the people chose to recognize that authority. And by the way, you notice that the kings that did right were strong, focused, deliberate. There was no confusion. They weren't being wishy-washy. They weren't, you know, hesitant. They were very strongly clear. You're looking for leadership that's clear, that knows where they're going, knows where you're going, knows where they're taking you, and is not wishy-washy and all indecisive and blah, 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 and doesn't know what's going on. You need strong leadership. But a lot of you are afraid of strong leadership. You don't like strong leadership. You, you're, you're made very uncomfortable by strong leadership. Asa said, if they don't do this, kill them. That's pretty strong leadership. Strong leadership is necessary. Why? Because we are children. We're spoiled children. We're disobedient, rebellious children. And if you're a parent, what do you need to do with those kind of children? You need to be strong with them. They need strong hand. I'm I'm not saying you need to hit them with it. I'm saying they need a strong hand. They need to know that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. And that if you say there will be consequences, there are consequences. And if you say there'll be reward, there's reward. See, some of you have children problems because you're weak in the parenting department. You need to be strong. Not not aggressive, harsh, or mean. Strong. We can call this meek. Meekness is quiet strength. Of course, I'm working on that. I'm kind of loud strength, but... Okay, But if you've ever been with me when things are really bad or there's a real crisis, you'll notice my voice gets softer and I'm still very strong. And I say, but we need to do this. So I do bring in the quiet strength when it's a crisis. But you need to show and exemplify scriptural strength. Not being a tough guy, not being a bully and a dictator, but to have the strength to lead in a loving, compassionate way because you care to keep everybody safe and bless them. Look, in a sense, the man of the house is like Yahweh is to everyone. If, if I'm being my job right, my family should be blessed, safe, and being nurtured in their transformation. Do you hear that, guys? If you're doing your job right, your family should be safe, blessed, and nurtured in their journey of changing from what they are into what he is. Just like Torah does. That's your role in leadership. Mothers, the same thing. You spend more time with the children than the men do. You need to be strong. You need to have the discipline there so that they can be safe, blessed, and transformed. Understand your positions and your roles. It's very important. Let's pray. Avina Makeno, our Father, our King, Father, we come before you. And we're, Father, we're just wanting to understand more and more and accept into our lives the appropriate responsibility, role, and, and um, effect that leadership does have within the body. Good and bad leadership. And we see the fruit that can come from either one. Father, help us to be submissive to you, first and foremost, and your son Yeshua in the understanding of authority. Help us to find anointed appointees of this time and get behind them 
and learn how to submit to authority that you gave them to help us to grow, to be safe, to be blessed, and to transform. Father, we are just so thankful and so pleased and appreciative that you gave us your word with all these stories and examples of the events that happened so that we can see the fruit and the results of the choices that people have made. And we can understand your plan as it lays out in the word of the scriptures. So, Father, we just want to come before you very humbly, appreciating, praising your name and thanking you for all that you've given us and that you would continue to be patient with us as we go through the transformation process. So, Father, we want to place ourselves in your hands, praising your holy name in the name above all names, Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Now is the Time with Steve Berkson here on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time Radio is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org.